Welcome everybody. I hope you had a nice breakfast and feel refreshed after like an intense day yesterday. The first talk that you're attending today will be given to you by Saren Kell. Saren, if you would please stand up and say hi. Hi, hi everyone. <laughs> and then there's Will Saunter, who's sitting here in the front row. He's going to get up to the podium later. Um, I'll give you a brief introduction of Saren and Will, and then I'll leave the stage to Saren. Saren's background is originally in biochemistry. She focused her research in Oxford on cellular senescence and the fundamental processes underlying human aging. Over the last few years, she has been involved in both the cultivated meat space, focusing on cell culture media and then co-founding Cellular Agri Agriculture UK, and then also external innov innovation more generally, previously working at InPart, a startup that connects R&D-focused companies with academia to encourage greater co collaboration. Now, Saren works at the Good Food Institute Europe. She works to build a strong, well-funded scientific community in the sustainable protein space across Europe. And Will Saunter co-founded the Cambridge University Alternative Protein Society, which was formerly the Cellular Agriculture Society in 2019 to help raise awareness of the field at the university. He now works as the director of alternative protein field building for EA Cambridge, working with CUAPS to develop talent pipelines and open access research in the field globally. He has also worked in a stem cell scientist, as a stem cell scientist, sorry, for animal alternative technologies, a cultivated meat startup in Cambridge. And with that, I'll leave the stage to Saren. Thank you. Um, thank you for coming, everyone. Um, as described about the talk, we are splitting it into two parts. So I will start giving a really high-level overview of the alternative protein space and why it is that the Good Food Institute thinks it's such an important cause area to be working in. Um, and then I'll hand it over to Will, who'll talk explicitly about field building in the alternative proteins community. Um, so yeah, from my side, I'll start very briefly just describing GFI and what it is that we're doing, why it is that we care about alternative proteins and think they have this huge potential and are really powerful. And then I'll talk a lot more about how kind of young leaders and people generally can get involved in the space. And then I'll, I'll hand it over to Will to provide a case study of how exactly it is that the Cambridge Alternative Protein Society have actually been doing that. Um, okay, so the Good Food Institute broadly and the Good Food Institute Europe, we're an international NGO. We're split very much globally across the world. We have offices in Brazil, um, India, Israel, Europe, US, etc. Um, broadly speaking, acting in geographies which really matter either for future meat consumption or where the best innovation or the policy and regulatory environment could enable real kind of growth and progress of the alternative proteins industry. Um, in terms of what we are doing, we are working across three different um, kind of programmatic areas. So science and technology, policy and corporate engagement to really push forward the space as fast and effectively as possible. Um, okay, so why is it that we're doing this? Why is it that we think alternative proteins have such a huge potential? So really the question that kind of leads all of this and the question that we're trying to find answers to is how is it that we are actually going to feed the world, which will be at the year 2050, around 10 billion people, 
Um, at the moment, I think annually, we produce about 350 million megatons of meat every year. And by the year 2050, that'll go up to about 500 million megatons that, that will be demanded. At the moment, alternative proteins are barely a rounding error of that market. Um, even though there's this kind of sense that in recent years, the industry has been kind of growing. Yes, but when you look at the scale of the problem and how much meat it is that is actually being consumed globally, it is nothing. And I think most people here are probably aware, but just as a refresher for why it is that we think that that is potentially really damaging and harmful. Um, global meat consumption is responsible for broadly these kind of four buckets of, of cause areas. So climate change and environmental degradation. I think the latest data is that animal agriculture is responsible for around 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So that is literally equivalent to all transportation globally. It's not just about climate change, there's general degradation kind of more broadly. So water usage, um, kind of deforestation, things like that. Global food insecurity. We simply cannot actually feed the people that we will have in 2050 through scaling up the processes that we have right now. It just is not enough land because growing crops to feed them to animals is fundamentally so inefficient. Chickens, I think, are the most efficient animal known to man in terms of converting cal kind of calories in to calories out as food. It still takes nine calories of feed going to a chicken to produce one calorie of actual protein. So there's just not enough land to actually feed the people the protein that they need, given how much the population is due to grow. Um, there's also public health concerns, so antimicrobial resistance. The vast majority of our antibiotics are actually just fed systematically and indiscriminately to animals in factory farm conditions, purely because they're living in conditions which are so conducive to the development of novel diseases that it just makes commercial sense. But this is such a core driver of antimicrobial resistance, which really is a public health crisis in the making. Um, obviously, kind of zoonotic risk more generally. COVID is probably the most kind of salient recent example. Um, but it is generally true that pandemics are animal-derived in origin and factory farms are the perfect breeding ground for future pandemics. And then finally, and maybe kind of most pressingly for many in the effective altruism movement, there's the point about animal welfare. Um, if you don't actually, so if you're just focused on land-based animals, it's over 60 billion animals that we are raising in conditions every year, which are clearly kind of very unpleasant and there is a large amount of suffering inherent to those conditions. If you take fish into the equation, I think that number goes up to trillions every year. Um, none of this is new. A lot of this is well known, especially the environmental impact. Um, people are generally aware that meat consumption is really damaging and destructive for our environment. That's probably kind of generally in the public the first thing that people kind of think about if they're considering wanting to cut down meat. So people know this, it's well established and has been for a long time. But despite that being true, meat consumption just keeps going up and up and up and continues to be projected to do so um, much more by the year 2050. So it just seems true that meat consumption tracks pretty linearly with wealth. And in the future developing countries, which will have kind of billions of extra kind of people in, in the middle class quotient in the next few decades, so Brazil, China, India, um, meat consumption is just gonna go absolutely through the roof. Um, so yeah, why? Why is it that when we know the harms of meat consumption, it is true that it is still just rising and rising year on year? Um, 
From what we understand at the Good Food Institute around all of the social research that has been done, taste, price and convenience really are the core immediate drivers of consumer decision making around what they're going to eat three times a day. Only when those three things are kind of addressed, um, um, kind of favourable, are then people more interested in these secondary concerns around animal welfare or environmental benefits and things. But basically, only a small proportion of the population, a small amount of the time, is going to make their decision on the basis of those evolving drivers. For most people, most of the time, it is just around taste, price, and convenience. So that is why at the Good Food Institute, we are really trying to accelerate alternative proteins and make it so that these alternatives do actually compete on the basis of taste, price, and convenience. As far as we are aware, it is the only market-driven, scalable solution to displacing factory farming and the harms that it causes that genuinely kind of works in this kind of market-driven approach. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of our theory as to why we, we, we back alternative proteins so strongly. In terms of what we mean by alternative proteins, just brief definitions for those who might not have kind of come across it before. Broadly speaking, there are three different buckets or categories that we see at the Good Food Institute. So plant-based, where essentially you are creating meat alternatives, which are using plants as the building blocks. So think your Impossible Burger, your Beyond Burger. You are taking plants, you are breaking them down into their constituent parts, plant parts and reformulating them back into products which are genuinely trying to replicate the experience of eating meat. Cultivated is distinguished from that insofar as cultivated is actual real meat. You are growing animal cells in cultivators and recreating the genuine tissue and biochemical structure of muscle and fat tissue so that you really are making meat. And finally, fermentation is a slightly blurrier category. Basically, I think you can define it as using microbes in some way to produce protein. So that could be where the microbes themselves, so yeast or fungus, actually are the protein source. So if you have, for example, corn in the UK, where it's this filamentous fungi, um, or you are using microbes as an expression platform to create ingredients which enable you to innovate with plant-based or cultivated proteins. So just for example, the Impossible Burger has this heme molecule in it, which is what makes it bleed. Um, that heme is expressed in yeast and then purified and put into a plant-based product. Um, so yeah, fermentation is using microbes in clever, cool, and interesting ways to create protein substitutes. In reality, I've just described these as three distinct segments. It's probably true that it will not actually be in practice in the industry, three very distinct segments. It's quite likely that products are gonna exist along a spectrum where you'll have hybrid products in the middle. So for example, a plant-based burger that includes cultivated fat because fat is generally what is missing from plant-based products right now, replicating that kind of animal fat. Um, or you could just have fully cultivated or fully plant-based, but it's quite likely that there's gonna be kind of blurry synergistic benefits between the different production platforms in the future. Um, I really like this slide. It's, it's basically making the point that displacing animals with technology, once technology has enabled us to do it just better and more efficiently than the original animal, is really not a new thing and something that humanity has been doing over and over again, time and time again, over the last however many thousands of years. So just some examples here. 
obviously for transportation, we used to use horses and pack animals. Then technology allowed us to use things like cars, planes and trains. Likewise, we used to use livestock as food storage and tradable wealth. And then we just invented currency and refrigeration. And we really see alternative proteins as just continuing along this narrative of humanity using technology to help us do things just better and more efficiently. Um, just very briefly to kind of ground us in the context of where the industry is at right now. So this is year on year for around the last decade, how much private capital has gone into the alternative protein space. So there's an obvious trend here where more and more money is going in each year, where each year the amount of money going in is almost the same as the total cumulative money that's gone in in all the previous years. Um, so the space is growing, there is, there is excitement, consumers are buying it, it's particularly promising because these products aren't really quite there yet with respect to taste and price, so it's, it's kind of good to see that people are actually enjoying them even when they're not where they could be. Um, but I do want to ground that in where the industry actually stands in relative terms compared to other spaces and given especially the power that it has to address the different issues that I was discussing earlier. So on the left-hand side here, we have the relative contribution of different industries to global greenhouse gas emissions. So livestock, the figure there's 14.5%. It probably is actually closer to 20%. We've seen from more recent data, it is about the same as transportation. And then electricity and heat production is about double that. But if you look at the amount of capital that goes into the technologies which are trying to address those problems, there's such an imbalance where actually relative to alternatives to transportation, alternative proteins gets basically nothing in comparison. So I just really want to ground the fact that yes, there's a sense that the space is growing and there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of kind of private money coming in. But private money is not the thing that is especially needed right now. And even in relative terms, that private money is actually nothing compared to other industries. So just kind of wanting to ground that. Um, okay, so how can you get involved? Um, as I say, the industry has grown in recent years. Technologically speaking, we have really made kind of leaps and bounds. Here we've got different examples of different products which have come out across plant-based and cultivated and fermentation. Uh, Mark Post's famous cultivated burger up there in the middle. Um, but with that being true, the industry at large isn't really older than about 10 to 15 years. There's still so much untapped potential and so much low-hanging fruit, not just across the technical developments that the industry needs, but across the full length of the value chain. Regulation, policy, corporate engagement, distribution channels, all of it is so new and is really quite neglected relative to where the space needs to be to actually displace animal agriculture. On the technical side, I'm not gonna go through all of these, but just so I've kind of, you've seen it. Here are some examples of the absolute top research priorities to make these products better and to make them actually compete on taste, price and convenience. So for plant-based, for example, breeding crops which have higher protein yields, at the moment, most of the crops that goes into plant-based products are soy, wheat, and pea. That's not really because they're necessarily the best crops for it. That's because that's what's available and that's what grows globally. Um, but there's not been a huge amount of work to kind of see what can we do with crop breeding to make these products actually intended for the final application focus. I already mentioned plant fat. 
Um, most of the reason that existing plant-based products don't quite taste the same as meat is because it's really, really hard to replicate a taste of animal fat, which is what basically makes meat taste good. Um, plant fats just are pretty different from animal fats. And if we can find genuine kind of equivalent alternatives, then that would just make these products a lot better quite quickly. Cultivated research priorities. Obviously the industry is much younger and less mature um, than plant-based or fermentation. There's a huge amount of work intended and, and needed to bring down costs and to actually allow scale up of the production of cultivated meat so that it really could be something which is cost competitive and readily available to people. And fermentation, likewise, there's just a huge amount of work that could be done to optimize. I mean, we've we literally barely started working with microbes to do just cool and exciting things. Um, there's a precedent in the pharmaceutical space and in the nutraceutical space, but not for food applications when producing large volumes of the protein itself. And there's just a huge amount of kind of reappropriation and thinking that needs to go into how to scale up the processes for alternative protein applications. Um, the space isn't just for scientists. I, I hope I haven't kind of given that impression at all. So those are the research priorities. There are many things which are needed for the alternative proteins industry across the full length of value chains we have here in academia. That is a lot of the scientific research questions that need to be addressed. Also in industry, establishing supply chains, making sure that there is actually clear flow through of products and services within an industry which has just basically exploded overnight. In government, I haven't spoken a huge amount about policy, but there are many things that governments need to be doing to actually enable this industry, which right now they are not. So regulation, um, labeling of these products, for example, can you call them meat? Can you call them milk? Or do you have to call them something stupid? Um, and just broadly speaking, an enabling environment for the actual commercial ecosystem itself. And then nonprofits um, doing things like what the Good Food Institute is doing or what the Cambridge Old Protein Society is doing, broadly speaking, just trying to catalyze the, the kind of ecosystem as a whole. Um, on the science, I've just listed here some key disciplines which should be useful across solving the technical problems for all three of the production pillars. It's not exhaustive. This, relatively speaking, really not a crowded space. Basically, anyone could probably bring some kind of value to the industry. Um, that being said, those who have scientific expertise and entrepreneurial spirit, there is a very particularly high demand right now. Um, it's a really great time if you were looking to start a company in the biotech space. The alternative proteins industry is a place that would just, it would be, it's like a kind of, you know, it's like the kind of dot-com boom, but for food right now. Like it would be just an awesome thing that, really actually needs more people doing it and, and kind of taking those risks. Um, yeah, I think <laughs> moving to PowerPoint has done some things to that slide. But just to emphasize again that it's not just science. There's all these other aspects of the workforce and the supply chain that and all these other kind of types of expertise and degrees which would be useful to the alternative protein space in some shape or form. Um, on the non-profit point, just to highlight GFI Europe specifically, we are looking to grow significantly in 2022. That will be across our three core work streams, so science and technology, corporate engagement and business. Um, and if you're still at university, but kind of want to already start doing some kind of community building student movement around alternative proteins, now is literally the perfect time at GFI. We have literally just opened up applications 
for the next round of the Alt Protein Project, that is where GFI will work with you to really build a movement within your university through a student society. And I think the work that Will's going to describe um, will highlight some of the things that one could do as well as part of the Alt Protein Project. Um, very briefly, just to talk through some of the other resources we have, I won't spend too much time, but a lot of GFI's value to the world, I think, is just how many resources we put out there publicly and freely available. And it's important that people use them because they are really kind of useful for the people in the space. So if you are interested, if you want to find out more about alternative proteins, there are many ways to kind of get up to speed and get excited. I particularly recommend this interview series, Pioneers of the Futures of Food, where you'll be able to listen to different people working in the space and kind of what it is that got them excited and what it is that they are doing and how their career path took them towards it. Um, at, on our website, we have something called the Alternative, um, alternative Proteins, and Advancing Solutions for Alternative Proteins. It is essentially a database of the most important bottlenecks or problems which the industry faces. And so if you did want to move into the space and solve a particular problem, we have literally made a menu saying, here are the things that if you did, these would be the highest leverage ways to actually help the industry as fast as possible. If you are a researcher or a scientist and want to stay in research, we do run an annual competitive research grant program, so we would welcome you to apply to that. Um, for those who are looking to move into the, the space um, and generally kind of more commercially focused, we have a career portal and we also have an, a company database of all the companies in the space so you can see kind of where are they, what are they doing, maybe there's some fit for you and how you could get involved in that. Um, those are probably the main things. You can also add yourself to our talent database. So that's a place where companies look and see who are the interested, cool and smart people who want to get involved in the industry. Um, so you can just be in that database and then you might be approached by people in the industry. Um, we have a student resource guide. And if you are looking to start a company, we have a startup manual as well. Um, I think you guys are probably familiar with this, but also there are jobs boards elsewhere which will direct you towards other cool places in the alternative protein space or the animal welfare space more broadly. So 80,000 hours and also the more newly formed organization, animal advocacy careers. Um, yeah, I think I will basically just leave it there. Last thing, yes, just to say, um, we are 100% powered by philanthropy. Um, we are not as kind of spokes or spokesperson organization for the industry itself. We are not funded by companies. We really are a nonprofit who is trying to do whatever it is that needs to be done to help the space. Um, and if you kind of are looking to donate and you're interested in the animal welfare space, um, I think the work that we do is really cool and, and is really cool and impactful. Um, cool, I think I will just hand over to Will. I hopefully haven't run over to you.